Yes, this is News Talk here in Guttahee with you until one o'clock here with On The Record on News Talk. If you want to contact the programme, you can send me a text, 53106, that will cost you 30 cent, or you can get me on Twitter, at Kieran Cudahy. With me in studio today, uh, picking their way through the Sunday papers, Sheila Riley, Head of Digital with Iconic News, the regional newspaper group, former editor as well of the Longford Leader, Declan Power, Security and Defence Analyst, and Kevin Doyle, Group Political Editor at Independent News and Media. Very good morning to everybody. Morning. morning. Thanks for coming in. None of you wearing shorts. I thought you'd go for it. I thought someone would. It's quite cool in here. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's nice, isn't it? It's out in the real world where it's happening. I was walking across town. It was quite funny. You know the Dublin buses where they have like the 46A Dunleary or Lucan or wherever they're yeah. going? Yeah, one of them just had happy. <laughs> <laughs> so I've no idea where it was going, but... But they were happy. They were happy. Yeah. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Um, look, before we get into any stories inside the papers, uh, plenty about the weather in the papers. Actually, I'll just run through the, the front pages and the Sunday Independent leads with a danger hidden in soaring heat, elderly health warning, threat of fires, utter concerns. Philip Ryan and Alan O'Keefe with that story. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Business Post, uh, buried evidence and cash payments emerge in police probe of 1.6 billion euro NAMA deal. Nine suspects identified as part of the British National Crime Agency investigation. This is to do with private Project Eagle. The Sunday Times leads with Radker puts Fine Gael on election fo- footing. The Taoiseach has instructed Fine Gael ministers, officials and staff to bring forward six autumn selection conventions to July in the uh, anticipation that there might be an election earlier than some would have thought. Ireland hang on for epic series win in Australia. A photo of the rugby players celebrating down in Australia as well on the front page. And the Irish Maid on Sunday leads with history as TDs to get maternity leave for the first time. Move to make politics more attractive for women and that is the stories on the front pages of today's papers and actually Declan I wanted to start with you because there's a story it's not on the front pages of today's papers but there is some coverage inside and there's coverage online and there's coverage during the week of an anniversary uh, this weekend it's the 60th anniversary of Ireland's first overseas mission is that right to the Lebanon correct yeah yeah 1958 uh, the first uh, Irish officers uh, were deployed as UN military observers and <clears throat> it was the start of a, a long chapter of service uh, to international peace and uh, security and stability through the UN and they're having a ceremony up in uh, Dublin Castle today to recognise it not that most of the general public will be aware uh, as is the case with most of these things that involve the military and you know it's one thing to have a ceremony in Dublin Castle but I, I really would hope that some of the lessons would have been learnt I mean obviously you know this is the uh, this chronological year is the year that the men who served and fought at Jadaville were honoured with uh, with medals and you know a lot has been said about that I have nothing further to add to it I wrote the book on it and that's it but there's a lot of other things that have happened. I mean, I was conscious. I was talking to one of my former commanding officers there yesterday, Colonel Colm Doyle, retired. Uh, <clears throat> he did amazing work on behalf of this state, on behalf of Europe and the international community in the Balkans in the early 90s, when that part of the world was tearing itself asunder. And he is recognised as a figure internationally as having been a pivotal force for good in trying to limit the conflict and the, the carnage and the, the brutality and uh, broker ceasefires. Hmm. And uh, later then, you know, uh, so when, when all the dust had settled and the war criminals were brought to trial, he was a significant uh, witness in putting the likes of Slobodan Milosevic, Radfan Karadzic, uh, General Ratko Mladic, three of the bloodiest butchers of the Balkans. He is responsible for them behind bar- being behind bars. Now, he'll never say this himself, like an awful lot of other Irish peacekeepers who did sterling work, but his own state 
completely ignored what he did. Had he been a, uh, he was a, a commandant at the time, the equivalent of a major in the, in the army. Yeah. But he was at this, this high level. And like so many other Irish um, diplomats and uh, military people when they serve in these missions, if he was in France or Britain, he would have received honours. He would have received a knighthood. We would know his name uh, intimately. Uh, he was ignored. He was passed over for promotion. He was even, even in his attempts to contribute to third level education on these matters. He was, near, he was blocked at the time by the, the then general staff. And it's, it's crazy. We're having this ceremony in Dublin Castle. And the minister, who was a decent man, and I've dealt with him in the matters pertaining to Jadaville, but they're, they're sort of unaware of the, the huge amounts of contribution that Irish people have, have committed to this. And we don't harness it. We don't harness the but learning do you, is from the, it. Is there political ambivalence, though, because of just a public ambivalence? Yes, you're right. It's, there is a public ambivalence because um, we just have a lot of illiteracy in this country when it comes to military affairs. On Friday, there was a, a presentation by Brian Hayes in the IIEA about the need to re-examine our defence relationship with Europe. And again, it would be policy wonks and people like myself and re- you know, retired military people mm. who would have paid attention to that. We sort of only pay attention when there's a big issue. Everybody gets on board. Suddenly, oh, medals for the Jadaval boys. After the heavy lifting is done, mm. everybody wants to join the party then. Uh, or the two men, um, uh, Doherty and Joyce, who were killed, in ac- killed not even in action, in Lebanon when they were on a Mickey Mouse listening post in the middle of one of the most dangerous conflict zones. And they were both killed practically in cold blood. And everybody gets on board for a brief period. But yeah. the thing is, unlike other countries, just because we don't have an imperial heritage doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, properly own and embrace our, uh, I won't even call it military uh, realities, but our, our international security uh, identity and, uh, and be more upfront about it. I heard somebody there recently at the IEA mm. talking about, oh, they were worried about our involvement with other security related groupings. We'll say the PESCO arrangement yes. and things like that, uh, because they think it will limit our ability to engage in human rights and humanitarian activities. It's not binary. I actually led a project a few years ago in Africa that was to do with improving the capacity of uh, humanitarian organizations, NGOs and UN NGOs to function better on the ground and more safely. And it was an Irish-Swiss project. And the Irish, who didn't even have the major cost to bear, they pulled out of it. We sometimes think, because we stay aloof, that we're engaged in everything. We're not engaged in half the things we could be or should be. Is our aloofness part of our neutrality, Declan, though? You know, and is that kind of part of the, that public ambivalence that you're talking about as well? Is that all tied mm. up on it, do you think? No, I don't think so. I think that it's, an, it's a very valid question you ask. People think it is. Well, I mean, there's an awful lot of projects and things we could be involved in that we're not. And other countries like Canada, the uh, Holland, um, Belgium, uh, you know, they're three countries that are all involved in military alliances and are all hugely involved in peacekeeping and humanitarian work. We are slipping down the ladder in the in the, the uh, premiership of peacekeeping. You know, we have troops in Lebanon at the moment in two missions that frankly are a bit Mickey Mouse now at this stage. There are other, we have, we, the, we have a small, very small number of troops in Mal and Mali which is a much more significant mission. And there are other significant missions. And our Department of Defence and our government need to wake up and be a little bit more uh, um, adept at looking about where we can make a contribution and uh, be more analytical about it. And our body, our, our society, our, our political society and society in general need to be aware that there are, um, there are things we could be doing that would bring huge uh, there would be door openers to this country. It's funny, Sheila mentioned Irish neutrality. Uh, 
I interviewed Fergal Purcell here last week on the show and obviously he spent 18 years I uh, Fergal he was senior class to me in the Curragh yeah. oh was he ok he, uh, I, I hurled junior with him we won an all county junior league in 2003 that's why he has that, <laughs> funny, that's why he has that funny nose now yeah Sorry, exactly Fergal. yeah um, um, the uh, and in events of that interview and because this uh, when Ireland joined uh, the UN in, in 55 and then we yeah. had this mission in 58, yeah. uh, the first overseas mission, Irish neutrality, the phrase Irish neutrality, didn't appear once in the, I went to the Irish Times archive, sorry Kevin, <laughs> uh, uh, in 55, it didn't appear once. In 58, yeah. the phrase Irish neutrality appeared twice, once in the context of the border and the second time because there was a German cultural festival being held <laughs> somewhere in South Dublin. Yeah. And it's been mentioned something like 20 something times this year, mm. all about PESCO. Mm. Nearly. Yeah, <coughs> well, it's just amazing. Like, yeah. if you say we'd never gone on an overseas mission, Kevin, could you imagine what you'd be dealing with down the doll if suddenly we were going to send troops to the Lebanon or Syria? Oh, it, it would be beyond it would be outrageous. Issue. Yeah. Even the debate around PESCO that's taking place now. I, I think it's interesting what you're saying, Declan, around the whole idea of whether politics cares or not about the defence mm. forces, and is that a reflection of society not caring? I think Leo Radker probably has a little bit more interest in this whole yeah. area than some of his predecessors. He tried. To go to Mali last year um, and it had to be postponed uh, if memory serves me right I think there was some political drama that took place here he's been talking about behind the scenes going to Mali again this year but now there's trouble over there and the security issues around yeah. bringing someone as high profile as him over so he's very keen to go there they and manage it though. Um, they probably could yeah. and uh, it, it's talked about in the summer it's not ruled out yet but it's still on the plate as maybe for the but summer so I think he is right. a little bit more interested than, than perhaps his predecessors but you know, you're you're right. I will give you credit. There's a phrase in in, in military uh, doctrine they talk about strength and de- uh, defense in depth and defense you know uh, in, in breadth. Um, in terms of that, it's it's more uh, awareness of defense in breadth rather than depth. Now it's a step in the right mm. direction. It's to be welcomed. But the truth of the matter is, <coughs> we we really do need to examine and have a, an intelligent and informed discussion about what our security and defense imperatives are. And, and you know we tend to let it get hijacked by people. It'd be like me coming in here to contribute to a debate on uh, childcare or something like that. In fairness, I wouldn't have the credentials to do so. And oftentimes I find myself in debates in this country with people who don't have the credentials Mm. to be in the debate. Uh, I've no objection to somebody having a different point of view to me, but let it be somewhat informed. Uh, We really have to look at things if we want to shape the architecture of European defence and security? Or do we want to be, you know, sideliners, uh, you know, standing at the, the, the train station watching the train go out? We can influence it because an awful lot of defence and security architecture within Europe is not exclusively military or hard military. That's a NATO role and that has been acknowledged. But there is a panoply of arrangements and roles that are hard and soft that require military and civilian and a blended military and civilian expertise but when all is said and done I have to quote retired General uh, Gerald Hearn here he was at that uh, um, presentation on Friday he made you know he made one very telling point it's all very well talking about the uh, the strategy and there was you know uh, Brian Hayes was accompanied by Dr Barbara Kunz who's an academic from Germany and a specialist in European uh, defence cooperation between Germany and France. But if we neglect our defence forces and let them get hollowed out, and there's a hemorrhaging of 
young officers and young non-commissioned officers, the sergeants and corporals who do the you know the heavy living, yeah. where the rubber meets yeah. the road, out of the defence forces, there is a, a lack of forward thinking. I would argue uh, at government level, and it's you know notwithstanding what Kevin said, and I do take your point, and I think Leo Varadkar has been more interested, but. At departmental level, they are so conservative because that's their default position mm. since the foundation of the state. They've hollowed yeah. out the defence forces and we can change the strategy. I, I, I foresee a situation where we get more engaged with things, but we don't have the actual proper mechanisms. And that corporate knowledge and memory is it's one of the few institutions in the state that generally, you know, does what it says in the tin and performs. And it's the mechanism by which we should be moving forward with any peacekeeping conflict resolution. I go back, I round this back to retired Colonel Colm Doyle, who was a commandant in the army and he ended up heading the Europe, the then new departure European Community Monitoring Mission mm. that had retired the worst aspects of the Balkans. That was a diplomat's job. That would be, he was leading senior civil servants and diplomats. And it was a, a sort of a civilian entity. But because of his extensive experience as a UN military observer in Lebanon, in, de- in, in mitigating, negotiating and reducing conflicts and going head to head with the Israelis about various issues, he was the right man in the right place. It, and there, that doesn't come overnight. There yeah. isn't. There is probably an argument within that though that comes back to all politics is local and if Pascal Tunna who stands up on budget days and decides you're talking about the defence force being hollowed out I'm going to put an extra 50 or 100 million into yeah. defence and people will go why because what you're talking about there Declan very laudable as it is the actual if, if you went out here and did a Vox Pop on Grafton Street or wherever and asked people what do you think of the Irish Defence Forces yeah, the yeah, first yeah, answer you'd right, probably Kevin. get is they did great work during the snow yeah, yeah, you know yeah. Kevin you <laughs> are absolutely right and, and, and yeah. you know there's another part of it too like the Defence Forces is a huge part of the identity of like rural towns like, yes. that, I, that I'd be familiar with like Longford and Cav and, mm. and places like that now I know the barracks is closed in Longford and Athlone and mm. these places like so it's actually it's so rooted in the kind of the community the sense of yes. the community and the identity of those places you know even when we're talking about that gap if you like it seems extraordinary mm. doesn't it in a way. it does now you you both uh, have raised two very uh, important points and uh, to, to modernize them one thing is sometimes the local i'm a i'm a Midlands man, I'm a Mullingar man, and we felt it acutely. In there's my a definite Midland bias in this. Awfully long for it was me. We're coming to take over. Yeah. Some people say Kenny is as well. Sometimes yeah. I have to correct them all and say we're in the southeast. Yeah. You know, we're basically coastal. <laughs> we'll claim it. We'll claim it when it's useful. But the the key thing to remember is sometimes I remember saying this to my townsman that. You know, uh, barracks being in a town is not, you know, it doesn't have to stay forever and ever. The town's identity doesn't have to change because, you know, the defence posture changed. They wanted to create larger uh, entities. It was easier for soldiers to do duties and and, and many things rather than a, a plethora of small barracks. But there's another interesting aspect to this, too, when it comes to our engagement in um international European defence. There's a lot of scaremongering about agencies like the European Defence Agency. And people think it's uh, some sort of a licence to create an arms race. Mm. But but they very rarely know what they do. And I'll give you just two small and interesting examples from... uh, We already have the text in. Guy Verhofstadt and his European army, the federal states of Europe, where are we going to invade? They're all here in front of me. I know. And you see, this is is a little bit like our version of the Brexiteers in England who had 30-odd years or more of uh, media you know, tabloid media, mainly uh, telling them about the, the, the gauleiters of, of mm. uh, straight bananas and the gauleiters of Europe. Mm. And it was, you know, like the Third Reich. And we have our variation of it that's equally as unthinking when it comes to this. Well, there's two projects at the moment in the European Defence. Just to address that comment, the likelihood of a European army is 
is is just not real. And I say that as somebody who's been at the cold face because the, the various countries in Europe have so many caveats and um, various, um, you know, structures and demands about how their troops should be deployed. Like in Afghanistan, there's a kind of like a, a first, second, third degree uh, premiership, if you like, about where you can be put certain countries' troops because, you know, the, the, the Germans don't want to be outside of Kabul, the Belgians won't have their troops in the front line, etc., etc. And they're all members of NATO. So like, our country is not unique. Irish exceptionalism, to use a phrase beloved of international relation experts, is uh, sometimes... Not that exceptional. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and th- that somehow we think that by staying aloof that we do more. No, we don't. We do nothing for ourselves and we do nothing for anybody else if we stay aloof. We have done great things in concert with other nations. The EDA, the European Defence Agency, two small examples. There is a project at the moment, to the best of my knowledge, being run in NUI Galway that is funded by the EDA to do with developing a response to chemical warfare, creating a form of baby wipes <coughs> that ordinary civilians can use to limit the effects of chemical warfare so that you know they could be dropped into an area or stored in an area and wiping down the body mm. will save lives. Yeah. And that, that's been funded by the ETA. And there's, I think, a, a young Indian academic based in NUI Galway, his name evades me, leading yeah. that. The second one is, <coughs> he recently retired, and he should get a mention, I think, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Ray... God, his name has gone out of my head now. Uh, I'll uh, have to forgive me for uh, excess of the night before. It'll come back to me. But he was the, he's the, was the officer in charge of the ordnance school in the Curragh. Now, bomb disposal is their game in the ordnance school in the Curragh. Irish officers and non-commissioned officers have been to the forefront in developing a counter IED uh, devices, counter booby traps. Uh, Irish personnel that were involved in Afghanistan uh, collaborated on a project that limited the effects of you know roadside booby traps on killing Afghan, mainly Afghan policemen and soldiers, and uh, w- European uh, soldiers with the uh, the International Assistance Force by use of technical methods and intelligence-related methods of studying the patterns of the people who planted the bombs and interrupting that pattern, and that was funded. By Ray, and the, ma- the man's name who came up with this was Lieutenant Colonel Ray Lane, who was a, a legend in bomb disposal in the Irish Defence Forces. And he's, he's gone now. He's retired. I wouldn't mention his name otherwise. But I do believe that he should be acknowledged uh, in as much as we acknowledge anybody. Yeah. Now, we could not contribute to that kind of project without a basis for engagement. And, you know, things like the European Union, things like Partnership for Peace, things like PESCO, which is not an alliance, it's an arrangement, it is a a mechanism. They give us the chance to contribute on an international stage, not to join a European army, but to try and make the world safer. All right. Look, on that note, we'll take a quick break. Uh, Declan making the point that uh, European EU states couldn't agree on what to do with the European army. We'll see if they can agree what to do about the uh, migrant crisis after this short break. On the record. On News Talk. You're very welcome back to On the Record. Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock. Sheila Riley, Declan Power, and Kevin Doyle are with me all in studio. And as I mentioned before the break, uh, immigration is an issue that's covered uh, in the papers. I suppose in two different contexts today: the U.S.-Mexican border row uh, continuing, but also this uh, mini summit that's taking place in Europe today. Sixteen member states uh, sitting down to discuss the immigration crisis. Uh, and Kevin, there's so many subplots to this. You know, th- this is this is about uh, the influx 
influx of migrants from Africa uh, through North Africa. It's how to deal with them. It's where they're dealt with. But it's also about Italian politics and German politics and uh, French politics. Macron weighed in and says, what are you all cribbing for? This isn't a crisis at all. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And I think probably it'll all come back around Angela Merkel at the end of it. Um, because, I mean, she opened the borders and she is now getting blamed by many of her European counterparts for where we are a year and a bit later. Um, and it's interesting, her own uh, within her own political system it's turning against her and you know at the time we all lauded it and clapped hands and then you read in the papers today about some of the stats around you know our Ireland has taken a thousand cleansed refugees if you like who have gone through every security check that they can be possibly put through and we think we're great um, and it, it is kind of curious to, to read a lot of the Irish commentators um, casting aspersions on a lot of what's happened in Europe when actually this country probably hasn't done a whole lot and it's nearly a bit like what Declan was saying about people having to come in and debate with people who don't know really anything about the defence yeah. forces except kind of high level views um, in some ways I think Irish commentators looking at this we don't really understand it because we True. can't we haven't had that influx yeah. that Germany has Yeah, you see yeah we Sheila, if, if we were a Mediterranean island mm, we possibly would have a very different mm. outlook on it and uh, yeah that's that's an important point and it's kind of we David, like David Quinn makes <laughs> <laughs> David Quinn kind of makes that point in his column uh, this week or today as well uh, about that you know that as as being at the far reaches of Europe means that we aren't at the cold face of it you know and it is kind of all well and good for us to be um, to laud uh, you know the rev- taking in refugees and the reality is we're not and I see in the local papers His, his conclusion is probably yeah. worth noting Sheila which is that Ireland is closer, closer to, to Trump, Trump than Merkel I'm not sure I subscribe to that theory but he has a point but I don't <coughs> think we're quite that bad Yeah I, I think that's over-egging it now a little bit but at the same time you can see you understand the logic of, of what he's saying you know and um, I see, you know, uh, I see in the local papers when, say, the refugees, when they are being housed in certain areas, you know, there's always a bit of uproar and there's always a big meeting, a public meeting under the guise of, you know, we just want to know what's happening and all this sort of stuff. In reality, you know, we do have a very kind of mm. two-faced attitude to it. You know, we say a lot of the right things, but our actions are maybe not necessarily as as right on as we'd like to think, you know. Um, having said that, I think this summit today is, is definitely all about Merkel. It's all about Merkel's political survival. She's probably at the end of her tenure anyway. She what 13 years or so at the helm in in Germany but uh, you can see the whole thing is slowly but surely falling apart and particularly in relation to Bavaria now that she's kind of losing the support Mm. if you like of the CSU they're threatening to close the borders there you know you see this kind of bluff uh, calling Merkel's bluff going on it's uh, it's incredibly dangerous really Mm -hmm. to be honest you know we're at really probably the most significant crunch point in this whole crisis if you like and in lots of ways I kind of fear that we've come to the point where people nearly aren't as, as kind of engaged in it as they should be because there's kind of a bit of weariness about yeah. it, if you like. Uh, when in reality, this is probably one of the most, the most significant moment uh, for the European project, if you like, yeah. uh, in since its inception. Yeah, Declan, we, we see like it, it, this situation in Europe and we've seen it in other areas in fiscal policy and in tax and you mentioned security and defence as well where Europe has kind of muddled through to the point where it's in a kind of a halfway house mm-hmm. where there isn't a kind of a unified policy across all member states to, to how to deal with an issue and and that was fine but it's kind of I suppose integration has come to the point now where it it really needs to be all duck or no dinner in certain areas and this is one isn't it like but in terms of <coughs> y- yes and no border it, control and there's a number of interesting points raised particularly there uh, by both Kevin and Sheila uh, one is I think it would be a shame in one sense if Angela Merkel goes which is probably likely because she has been a great 
source of stability and uh, being able to stabilise the thinking and the direction of the European Union. In a world gone mad. In a world gone mad, yeah. precisely. As, uh, uh, after uh, some of uh, Donald Trump's more excessive outbursts, she was described as the, the real leader of the free world. But um, politics and is politics and internally she has a, a, a sticky wicket to guard. And the... There's a degree of hope, I would say, in the sense that that level of dissent and, um, you know, uh, differentiating approach in Europe reminds us that Europe does not all sing from the same hymn book and that there is a, a space for debate and that we're not, you know, this idea that we're marching towards this completely integrational uh, approach. It's not that's not going to happen easily because there's a lot of bickering and that bickering shows us that there's space for it as well. But. To go back to a key point, unfortunately, a byproduct of some of that has been the attitude towards refugees. And uh, it, is it is regrettable that some of the newer members of Europe, who are probably the ones who have benefited from being in Europe in recent times, should, they have short memories. And most of the refugees that are coming here, in fact, nearly all of them, no, there's no refugees that have been involved in any terrorist acts in the last number of years. Nearly all terrorist acts have been homegrown, people that were born and reared or that have been living there for 20 years or more. And we would do well to remember that when the right-wing scaremongers come on to try and frighten us uh, into corners about uh, immigration. There was a report published recently, uh, I, I think it was this week or last week, talking about the financial benefits to states from refugees, that within the first five years, there was a huge, that there were actual financial benefits to their contributions to the economies. Uh, in that this was country, part of Merkel's theory, mm. though, wasn't it? And that's why she kind of favoured young, able yes. men yeah. who could come in and basically do a lot of the manual labour jobs that Germany needed done for their economy. Yeah. Like, counter argument being that some of those perhaps more desperate uh, that weren't able to travel across the continent didn't get that. As the help. a result, they lost out, you see, uh, and that is the point in relation to and, that. And that's, I would argue that that, just having been in the cold face of some of this work when I was involved in UN missions, bringing families into a country while, you know, who are fleeing pestilence and war, aside from it being the morally right thing to do, you have to remember a couple of things. One, not all of them want to stay here. They, this is a waypoint. And a lot of them want to go back if things stabilise. So uh, putting efforts and energies through organized, supranational organisations like uh, the EU, the UN and indeed NATO to try and stabilise countries or stabilise countries like Libya that can do an awful lot to try and contain the, uh, the refugee movements uh, can, can save lives. The second thing is though, having those families in this country uh, has, has been a benefit to the country, not just financially, uh, uh, culturally, politically. And the direct provision nonsense that goes on, where we put a lot of well-educated, capable people who are interested in working and sticking them in camps like Mosny. We're, we're, we're very ready yeah, to criticise Trump, but we don't actually figure out our own backyard. While those people's cases are being considered, they should be allowed work yeah. and contribute to the country. Uh, they're there, willing to do there's so. There's a huge amount of hurdles. I know that the Supreme Court ruled that, 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 mm. that, that they had a, a right to access work, but the this big long list, I think, is there 61 different areas or something that they're, they're not allowed to work in? And a thousand euro right, for yeah. a work permit while you're yeah. at it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Where are they going to get that kind of money at 19? Can I give you week? one example? Just one quick example. Yeah. I remember years ago, uh, this guy, he sticks in my head because uh, one of his names, he was a Nigerian gentleman and one of his names was Prince. And uh, he was a 
qualified university lecturer who came to this country was in direct uh, or what he, he was in receipt of, of allowances and he wanted to work and he was off, this is back in the boom he was offered a job as a marketing manager with a multinational and he ended up in court he went to the authorities and said I've been offered this job I want to take it and they said no 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 he said I want to give back the allowances and they said oh no no you can't do that sure how will you live and so he was more or less pushed in he, he was brought before the courts for drawing allowances while working he wanted to work he took the job he had the job and he had gone to the the uh, the authorities and said I want to stop the allowances and it was a case of making an ass of the law we we should be more proactive this guy was contributing and he wanted to contribute and he he was pushed into becoming a criminal unnecessarily uh, the term migrant crisis is one texter is a misnomer used by Pinko Media I think that's us maybe wow, it's just I, me am I a member of Pinko Media <laughs> uh, <laughs> today. Whoa, I'm not a right wing reactionary welcome anymore welcome to the fold uh, to downplay <laughs> illegal to immigration Trump's right about Europe turning into a gigantic refugee tra- camp uh, Kieran Tralee says vast majority of Irish immigrants from famine today were economic refugees Ireland cannot be hypocritical I totally agree that we're in a weak position to criticise the US when we don't step to, stop to help migrants ourselves Jerry says the sooner we're out of the EU the better oh, let's join our friends and neighbours the UK and Brexit Kevin down in mm. Leinster House how uh, how concerned are they about this as an issue given that there's only so much headspace each politician has they can only be worried about so much and so many things at, at one time and Brexit obviously is the EU issue for them you know is this on the agenda or is this kind of something look Look, we've got to deal with Brexit. The rest of you have to deal with this. It's not on the agenda. Let's be be straight okay. up about it. It is never, or not, not never, but very, very rarely does it come up in the doll as a thing. We talk about direct provision. There is all sorts of problems in direct provision that we know about and can't necessarily prove because it all happens behind closed gates. Um, but it never comes up. When's the last time you saw a minister um, go down and say that they want to sort out your direct provision? There's no votes in that because these people can't vote. So they're not going there. So no, it's not an issue. And I mean, it's, it's curious. I mean, even take the media. Take us pinko liberal media, right? Uh, this Later this week is the actual EU summit with EU leaders. Uh, we're going to all write about Brexit. We're going to all focus in on Brexit. The meeting will talk about Brexit for about 10 minutes and the rest of it will actually be about the migrant crisis. Mm. So that shows you where Ireland is at as a, as a whole. Mm. And, and Leinster House is a reflection of that bubble. Uh, the, the, there is, as I said, plenty of coverage in the papers about this. And uh, David Quinn is one of those who's tying it in with with, with what's happening in the US. Um, and that's an issue that I suppose we saw this rare U-turn during the week. And Mary McKeown is a good piece um, in the Business Post Post Plus section where she's down in McAllen in, in Texas. Like, Sheila, the... the, the like you see, and it's, I think it's a product. <laughs> blame social media for everything. That people get driven out to the extremes of this kind of this demand mm. for purity, and you see it on both sides of the debate. Like the uh, Donald Trump was calling uh, Mexican migrants um, an infestation during the yeah. week that they're going to infest our cities, which is to say that they're like insects or animals. Yeah, like quite see. literally, that is the description. But then on the other side, you know, Trump isn't Hitler either, and these are not concentration camps on the border. No, they're not. But at the same time, uh, you would have to take issue with the, with the type of language that he uses when he talks about these people, you know. Um, and there is, you know, there's certainly when when Trump talks, when he starts up about kind of, you know, illegal aliens coming in um, and, you know, we saw him this week and he met the angel families, he called them, the people who had uh, had lost uh, family members, uh, apparently two uh, in, in incidents where they were killed by illegal illegal aliens, according to him. 
Um, um, incidentally, they brought photographs of their their loved ones uh, to the press conference that he then signed, which was totally and utterly bizarre, if you ask me. But uh, but in terms of what he talks about, I just think the language he uses, you know, that infestation, infestation swarms, you know, all of those words that we hear. It's all kind of about dehumanizing that, you know, the people who are who are coming in. It's all about kind of making them part of the other, you know, and kind of this them and us scenario that he portrays all the time. And this is what he is championing. And in lots of ways, you know, we were talking about Merc- Mer- Angela Merkel there. You know, really what you're seeing here is about it's politics. Everything boils down to politics and the need to survive. And for him, this is part of this too. He, politics, he knows he won that election basically on using that type of language, on the language of infestation and all of that, you know, um, on kind of creating the other. And he sees this now as his avenue to the midterms, essentially, and to kind of Republican dominance. I mean, this kind of essentially, to my mind, is what it, ba- it comes back to, you know, he's playing to his audience. We know today various reports in the papers, 75 percent of his base support what he is, is, support his policy, support the zero tolerance. Now, the tearing the kids away from their families might have been a bridge too far for a lot of people. And certainly that did prompt uh, the U-turn. But that executive order is only going to run for a limited period of time. He will have to or something will have to happen and really it'll have to go back to Congress. So he'll get the chance then to blame the Democrats again for um, the fact that there's no progress on immigration. And you're just going to see this whole kind of cycle uh, perpetuate itself. And as you say, in the meantime, then you have all the right wing media coming out in in the States and they're saying, look at, you know, uh, these people are being well looked after. Look at the kids, the kids have teddies, whatever, <laughs> and all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, you are seeing the fight, the pushback from the Trump contingency as well or from the right wing as well in relation to it. Um, and again, to my mind, it all boils down to this creation of the other, of somebody who are separate from us, le- not less than human, but less than us, if mm. you like. I don't care, do you? I don't care. Do yeah, you? the jacket. What did you think of the jacket, Kevin? Oh, well, my theory in the jacket is that it is nothing having observed politics in, in a few different countries and how the inner workings of protocol and all mm. these scenario works. Nothing happens by accident. Yes. So the very idea that she might have just happened to put on that jacket and be photographed uh, in it. Absolutely. No, no doubt about it. And it's distraction by Trump. It that speaks to a core base because a lot of people in America are saying, I don't care to do you mm. about what's happening. And, and they're the Trump voters, perhaps. Um, so, no, it, it, it wasn't uh, a fake media thing. It wasn't mm. uh, an accident. It was all part of sure we get this will dominate the news cycle for 24, 48 absolutely. hours. And people will be talking about a jacket from Zara. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what happened. You that know, what it was from? She, yeah, mm. thirty nine dollars, the cheapest thing she's worn since she went into office, apparently publicly um, how I know this just but anyway <laughs> <Excellent> um, <laughs> good research but you know what I mean like it is definitely all about creating this kind of the chaos if you like you know so she's yeah. gone down there on this supposedly now we're talking about Melania Trump she's gone down there on this supposedly uh, mission of compassion to meet the children uh, who are on the border and to as she said help reunify families and uh, so she's talking the talk if you like yeah. but her actions are saying something entirely different you know and it's all about kind of the dog whistle politics that the Trump fraternity has survived and thrived upon and indeed hopes to continue with another term. Yeah, when when Leo Varadkar le- meets a world leader or is going to mm. some big event where there's going to mm. be the international press, they'll discuss what colour tie he's going to mm. wear. You know, they'll discuss... His socks. Uh, mm. They'll discuss genuinely what socks yeah. he's going to wear. And you know, oh, whether it's a woman in particular, For a female in particular in the public eye like that and for the First Lady, I mean, the, the clothes are just dissect. This whole website's um, devoted mm. to this claptrap. Like, clothes are just 
dissected yeah. at, at an the, unbelievably the yeah level. So the reality that you just kind of as to Kevin says, throw on an old Zara jacket to walk up uh, onto the plane. It just does not happen. And yeah. um, some of the, um, I think there's an article in the Independent today that talks about kind of the small team. Um, surrounding uh, Melania Trump, there's nearly an inference that you know, it kind of, it's a small, much smaller team than other first she ladies would have. That she does a lot of it yeah. herself, yeah. you know, and that uh, she kind of, she, she kind of takes control only, of that. You only know? ten direct aides, whereas um, Michelle Obama had twenty five. Yes, I read that in the paper today. Mm. It's very interesting. But and she doesn't have a, a like a bag bag man or bag yeah. woman yeah, either she doesn't, have, she doesn't yeah. she But on a, on, that, a, on a personal note, though, just to go back to that point, the the question. I don't care, do you? In a way, it was answered this week uh, where Donald Trump had to rescind his opinion. He, had, he signed an executive order. And I, I, I share your your, your cynicism, uh, Sheila, but it was still a, a very kind of surprising act, I thought. Uh, one thing that it, I'm, a, I'm an optimist at heart and what I think is happening over the last uh, few years since Donald Trump entered the presidency, it's a stunning um, test of the U.S. constitutional, U.S. constitutional integrity in the U.S. democratic process, and he has been limited. It's it's it, it, the system has been put to the test and it's working. His dafter excesses have been reined in between the opposition, the the constitution, and the media. Uh, there is this uh, you know limitation. And still, he has extraordinary power as does, a leader he, in a country. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. But I mean, but democracy is the institution. Yeah. Can as you much imagine the uh, if there was an outcry uh, about another leader, you know, Vladimir Putin, for example? Do you think he'd have rescinded or, or changed his mind, or Kim Jong Un in that regard? And and even that, and I'm no, I'm not a Trump. But you're supporter. talking about the leader of America <laughs> in the context of ah, uh, you know, Kim Jong Un would do the Kim same. I, I am, I am, but uh, I am common denominator. I, I, I agree, but but I didn't get to frame those terms. The fact is do we not note how quickly people are to compare him or his excesses to Nazi Germany and things like that mm. and it get, that's unhelpful because it's not comparing like with like the US and the, U, the, the US system is not that and that has been proven and you know it's great to see that there is that level of kind of watchdog approach so it was completely reprehensible what happened uh, separating those children but within a week that got overturned. Uh, and, and I think it, it somehow mobilised the opposite of the opinion that you're talking about that may get him elected. It mobilised an awareness among ordinary Americans that may even lean towards Trump to say, hold on a second, that's just not Yeah, us. And, and that's apparently that's why he actually changed his mind. Again, it goes back to exactly. politics because he began to, to realise yeah. that it was targeting that kind of soft vote yes. that could potent, potentially swing an election for him next round, time around and indeed the midterms this year for the Republicans. And that's really why he yeah. did that U-turn. Alan he, he did, but it's great that it, it yeah. happened and it certainly we're all in agreement. It wasn't because of Melania and uh, what's her name? Verushka. Uh, uh, what's the daughter's name? Uh, Ivanka. 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 Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's an infection you get in your foot after the swimming pool. <laughs> Alan and Castle Lock is a fan of Kevin. Kevin hit the nail on the head with direct provision. It happens behind closed doors. It doesn't affect a cohort of people who can vote. Therefore, nothing will be done about it. I worry in 30 years' time it'll be our generation's Magdalene laundries or institutional abuse scandal. Our generation who condemned the church for those abuses is doing nothing about what ha- what's happening in front of us now. Keep those texts coming in. 53106. Back after this short break. On the record. On the record. On Newstalk.
You're very welcome back to On The Record. Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock. Sheila Riley, Declan Power and Kevin Doyle are still with me in studio. And um, we turn our attention now to, well, a little bit of election fever, actually. The Sunday Independent, Leith Poll exposes Fine Gael's general election anxieties, Jodie Corcoran. This is writing, I suppose, about the detail that they had in the paper uh, last Sunday. Kevin, uh, were you writing about that, Kevin? Yeah, this, this was the Leo Varadkar's secret polling, which they still deny. Let Leo lead on. Yes, all, the, all those kind of slogans and I I suppose what Jody is looking at today is kind of the deeper stuff that was in that because we love the slogans, Let we love not. the headlines. We but, about. <laughs> but actually, there was much deeper stuff trying to find out whether people cared more about the health crisis or the housing crisis, uh, whether Brexit was reason enough to call an election if it if it came to a scenario where there wasn't going to be a, a deal and Ireland needed a stronger mandate uh, for a European leader that didn't have to go back to a minority government and, and argue the case um, and so it's kind of drilling down in all that and there's loads actually in all the papers maybe it's it's the heat uh, out there but there is lots of election talk even mm. though we seem to move in Leinster House at least this week we moved a little bit away from election talk because after that Sinn Féin motion uh, of no confidence in Owen Murphy, Murphy failed to materialise again yes uh, we, mm. we kind of all went okay well we'll get to the summer break now and we'll come back in September and we'll all speculate we'll all again. again yeah. Um, yeah and I think that is probably where it's gone I don't see one right now but I, the the Sunday Times talking about the Taoiseach ordering the speeding up of conventions um I'm not that surprised by that because Fianna Gael have only about half of their election uh, conventions held so 20 constituencies are there about they have candidates tied in uh, Fianna Fáil are well ahead of them They're, they have over 30 done um, so it's not really surprising that Fianna Gael would want to catch up and start getting people particularly if you have councillors or new candidates you need them to be actively putting their hand up and saying hello I'm the local rep get me on local radio get me in the local paper so I'm not surprised by that we're going to have an election it's just a matter of when and I don't think it's going to be the summer now and I think one of the interesting pieces of Jodie Cochran's uh, article I noticed as well was one of the things allegedly that they were polled about was perceived differences between Fine Gael, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and I think that's going to be a key aspect of any campaign you know that it is launched and indeed the perceived difference of when when an election might be and who it might suit the best the, know, the, the, big, point. the big question that and you'll see the manoeuvring when the time and you've already seen it a few times with the Francis Fitzgerald row and a couple of things like that is nobody wants to get blamed for the election yeah. so Fine Gael are ready and they want <coughs> yeah, an election yeah. but they don't want to get blamed for it because that could backfire over the course of three weeks uh, during a campaign because if it turns into a scenario where people are going oh politicians on my door I don't want to talk to them this is Fine Gael's fault sure, weren't they grand yeah. with their everything was going along there with new politics so there's a big fear over who gets blamed for it Fianna Fáil I think would be more comfortable with a February-March election because for whatever is reason Is there evidence though historically of a party <coughs> being punished for Causing I an election, as opposed to. I think there's a bit of overhype about that. Yeah. To be honest, I think people I just will be angry for a day or two. This is the thing. Yeah. And then they just get time. angry about. Yeah. I think it depends. Housing. Or Having said or that, when people did think there was going to be an election last Christmas, yes, the exactly. country did actually nearly go into meltdown over Christmas that. Like, that was actually yeah. a, a bridge too far. <laughs> so well, you I, have I to bear that in mind. I think it very much depends on the time of the year, and uh, yeah, that that no, the party that would have caused or triggered that election would have suffered. I think at that time, but. Uh, to turn it on its head a little bit, you were, uh, Kevin was talking about Fianna Gael. Uh, 
I think Fianna Fáil are under much more pressure uh, and will be in the lead into this. And I think there's a, a crucial point here. <coughs> the budget, when, when is the budget due? October. October. Now, second week of October. The second week of Ruins October. Ruins my birthday every year. Since <laughs> 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 they moved it back. <laughs> I'm an October birthday boy myself, but uh, towards the end of it. But uh, I can Sheila, I share do you want your, to share? <laughs> June. June. January yeah. myself. More civilised. <laughs> but... The budget is going to be interesting. There's more money in the national coffers. And if you were a Fianna Fáil strategist, do you want to give the ball to Fine Gael where they get to deliver this budget? OK, I think technically they said that they would support. This would be the third mm. one, wouldn't it? This yeah. is the last and one. And the last one. But then if they do that and they go into an election in February, they're going in where Fine Gael get this tidal boost of, well, of giving away money. They've got, I think, is it another couple of million more or billion more uh, to to play around with? So strategically, it's in Fianna Fáil's interest to manufacture some sort of a crisis or some sort of an issue by which they can pull their support before that budget, I would argue. They're not going to spend all that money though, Kevin. Well, you see, this <coughs> is the Prudence Party. Yes. This is where it gets interesting because we the debate has shifted and now Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael seem to be having a debate over which of them is more prudent. There was this boring. great thing <laughs> trying to call their yeah. bluff. The Fianna Fáil yeah. were terrified that Fine Gael were just pretending to be prudent so that Fianna Fáil would then call for spending and then they could say aha we knew yeah. you wanted to spend all the money so so to, to, to put this on a, without uh, I'll keep it as simple as possible because this is all very confusing right and I'm not going to use that those two words that FS uh, are short for <laughs> but essentially we're now in a scenario where there is over 3 billion to be spent but actually most of that has already been allocated on uh, Project Ireland and things like, and mm. public sector pay increases so when it boils down to it Pascal Donoghue has actually just 800 million which is very very little in the it, I mean, things, we'd have taken yeah. it a few years ago and thought it was <coughs> megabucks, but in the scheme of what we're now talking yeah. about pre-election budgets, very little. He has the option of another 900 million, which basically would be money that we would have to borrow, but we could do it within EU rules and the EU would be like, that's grand lads, work away. You're, the economy's flying. You can borrow that money. So he says he's not going to do that. He's going to keep it up to the 800 million, which we actually have. Um, and that 900 ain't going to happen and that's where things are going to get interesting because when the talks boil down to it and Fianna Fáil say they want A, B and C and Fine Gael want D, E and F um, and they have to do all that within 800 million so once you put in the tax cuts uh, you're already Which is around kind of 300 you've, million You've got a quarter billion yeah. gone there pretty much immediately yeah. if you're going to give people a fiver a week like Yeah Well um, Colin McCarthy has it worked out as two euro uh, a week per taxpayer Yeah and, and then once you put a fiver on the pensioners mm. for Willie O'Dee uh, <laughs> <laughs> that 800 will be gone very very quickly and people will look at that 900 million and say could we not dip a little bit into it so that's where the row is going to be Will right. Pascal be able to resist and Colin McCarthy actually mm. I think that is one of his yeah. lines. Will Pascal be able to resist dipping into that yeah. 900 million down the back of the couch? Um, and, and the, the answer to that is, is how it, that depends on what happens between now and October. And whether they want an election yeah, or not. Yeah. So Sheila, what's your predicted date then of an election? I don't know. I'd say they're going to try and hold off for as long as possible, but I'm totally and utterly guessing because it... Like 2018 though? No, I'd say early 2019 if they can, as long as possible. If they get past the budget and there's no major crisis, but then look at, I mean, we've had a million crises, small crises in the last uh, year or two. You know, like even in the last year, we've seen the government nearly topple, what, two, That's three the point, times, isn't it? That I mean? it's, it's the little thing that will trip them yeah. up. It's Albert not, Reynolds, you know. Albert Reynolds' famous, famous statement. Yeah, it's a little Yeah, things, and it yeah. was nearly yeah. an email that hadn't yeah. been noticed or had been noticed mm. and hadn't been alerted that, that nearly caught them. Yeah, you know, yeah. you can't see these things coming. I was no. at the... Uh, 
the Hillary Clinton um, uh, speech in Trinity during the week and I had to laugh Francis Fitzgerald was sitting there and I was like the two of you have so much in common you yeah. should go for a coffee afterwards and talk about your emails um, I, 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 I'm a 2018 believer I oh, think are we'll, you? I think we'll have it this wow, year 2018 yeah. right final you only allowed to name a year 2018, 2019 2020 even uh, my, my instinct would be that it'd be more 2019 but okay. logically I think Kevin is right alright <laughs> there we are so talk about logic and politics don't yeah. go together no. uh, the logical Kevin Doyle group political editor at independent news and media Declan Power security and defence analyst and Sheila Riley head of digital with Iconic News the regional newspaper group former editor as well of the Longford Leader thank you all very much for coming in stay with us here on the record back in a moment on the record on, the record. on news talk 